Turn with me to Titus chapter 1 on page 1198. One of those books where the page reference is quite useful. Titus chapter 1 on page 1198. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your spirit which fell on the Apostle Paul and inspired him as he wrote this letter to Titus. Lord, we pray that your same spirit would fall in this place just now as we come to look at your inspired word and to hear it for ourselves. Lord, make us every bit as eager as Titus to hear this, to take it on board, to act on it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the spring of 2002 when Russell Burney, the minister at Highkirk in Ballymena, invited me to come to that congregation to serve there for a year while he was the moderator in the Presbyterian Church. I was terrified. But before I went up to begin that work, Russell very kindly spent a couple of, of long sessions with me where he invited me to his home and he gave me instructions and advice about how I could be involved in and give some sort of leadership in this congregation during the time that he was away. I can remember going to those meetings. Um, I'm one of these ones. I was a school teacher's nightmare. I have the attention span of a gnat. You know, I, I can't pay attention very well. But I remember going there and being able to listen to every word and really to pay attention because I needed to hear this stuff. I had a strong sense that, that this was vitally important for me and uh, that under God, uh, this would be important for, for the life of Highkirk Congregation for that year. I tell you that because I think Titus maybe felt something similar when he ripped open the, the letter he got from the Apostle Paul. He was eager to see what, what the, the Apostle is meant for, the, the elder pastor. He was eager to see what Paul would, would instruct him and what Paul would tell him to do. And I'm sure he was just as eager to get out there and to put it in practice in Crete. We're going to spend some time now on Sunday mornings for the next four weeks looking at this short letter. Now, if you've been around Kirkpatrick Memorial for as, as long as I've been here, for nearly four years now, you'll know that not long after I came, I preached the letter of Titus in a short series in the evening services. The reason I chose to preach that letter at that point in time was that I think it gives wonderful advice for a small and growing congregation to find their place in the society where God has placed them. So four years ago, 30 or 40 of us gathered at evening services to think that through. I think we're still at that point, but there's just a lot more of us now. We're still a growing congregation trying to work out how we can live for God in this society, in this context, 
into which he's placed us. And that's why I thought we'd revisit, in a, in a slightly more condensed form, we'd revisit this short letter to Titus. I, I think it would have been a wonderful letter to, to receive for Titus and for that community in Crete. And I hope under the Spirit of God it'll be a wonderful experience for us to learn from this part of God's Word. Ruth read chapter 1 for us this morning. We're not going to look at chapter 1 verse by verse this morning. Instead, I'm going to try and introduce the letter to you. Um, and let's do that by asking a few basic questions. I want you to think about it for a moment. When, when a letter arrives on the doormat, when you've heard the, the letterbox flicking and you, you find the letter on the doormat, what's the first thing you do even before you open it? Try and work out who it's from. Um, sometimes there's a return address on it. Sometimes you're looking for the, the post stamp just to see where, where it was posted to see who, who do I know in, in that particular town or city. Look at verse 1. These letters are different than ours because they begin by telling you who they're from. We have to turn to the end of a letter to find out. But in, in this context, letters always began with the name of the writer. Paul, an, a servant of God, an apostle by Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Interesting what Paul says here. He calls himself a servant of God. If, if Paul was in, you know, one of those crowd breaker scenarios or icebreakers where you're in a circle and you all have to introduce yourselves and say what you do. Well, I, I think this is probably what Paul would say. I'm a servant of God, is the answer he would give. That seems to be his favorite phrase for describing himself. And I'm just struck, you know, it doesn't seem all that spectacular, but what a wonderful idea to carry of ourselves. A servant of God. What a wonderful identity. That our purpose and our job description, if you like, is to serve God. Paul goes on, he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now an apostle, that just simply means somebody who's been sent. But, but it also means that in quite a specific way. The apostle always plays a secondary role. The important person in this relationship is the person who sends. Okay, so a, an apostle isn't, old, isn't really important in their own right. They, they play second fiddle to the person who sends them with their message. And whose apostle is Paul? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. When Paul brings a message, it's not his message. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's a bit like what any good biblical preacher should be able to say. This isn't my message. This is the message that God gives us through his word. Paul goes on and he tells us why he's an apostle why he's been sent. He's been sent for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. So Paul's job is to make sure that people find faith. And that mightn't surprise us. Any preacher would hope that people under their ministry would come to faith in Jesus Christ. But he goes on. They're also to find the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul wants them to know the truth, but not just any old truth, a truth that leads to godliness, a truth that leads 
to a changed life. John Stott, he's emphatic in his commentary at this point. He says, any doctrine which doesn't promote godliness is manifestly bogus. It's a good use of the word bogus. If you're a Bill and Ted fan, you, you, won't, uh, you won't maybe have expected uh, that from John Stott. Any truth, any doctrine which doesn't promote godliness is manifestly bogus. That really struck me. And it begs a question, I think. How many churches do we have in Ulster who are brilliant at teaching and adhering to the truth? Loads. I, I think we have, we have an awful lot of churches who are very strong in that area. How many of them then, how many Christian people in our communities are being changed by that truth that we're learning? Are we growing in godliness? And I'm asking this now of us. We are people who gather here week by week to hear the word of God. Is it changing us? Are we growing in godliness? Am I? What would our spouse say in response to that question? What would our neighbor or our colleague say? Do they see any change in us over time? Do they see us growing in godliness? Does what we have been taught and what we say we believe make any difference in our lives? Paul's told us that he's an apostle. He's told us why he's an apostle. And now he tells us very briefly the message that he's been given. He speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who doesn't lie, promised before the beginning of time. Friends, isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? The hope of eternal life. Isn't that what we're promised in that most famous verse of all? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. That's what God intends for all of us. Now, I, I think we've probably missed the boat a wee bit with eternal life. Because we think of it only in terms of quantity. We think of it as being eternally long in terms of time. That's not the biblical notion of eternal life at all. Eternal life will be eternal in time, in quantity. But it's eternal in quality. It's a new kind of life altogether. And that's what God longs to give us through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus famously said in John 17. Now this is eternal life. He's going to give us a definition. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life isn't millions and millions and millions of years of life. Eternal life is knowing God. It's discovering the very life for which we were created. To know God and to know his son, Jesus. Paul wants us to be doubly sure that this, this promise is really true. So he goes on and he says, God who does not lie promises us this. And it's interesting that Paul chooses to focus on, on the, the notion of lies. Crete was renowned people being liars. I think Paul says that down there in verse 12 of chapter 1. 
it was a lying kind of a culture. It struck me, ours is a lying kind of a culture. I think it's made us all very cynical. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We've been lied to so often now by the advertisers, by the politicians. We live in a world of spin. A world where people are economical with the truth to suit their own purposes. We live in a world where it's hard to know who to believe and when to believe them. The promise of eternal life is given to us by God, the God who does not lie. Friends, that ought, to, that ought to be a huge encouragement to us. In a world where so few can be trusted so little of the time, we worship a God who speaks the truth. Who's this letter from? It's from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who's it to? Well, if you look at verse 4, you see there the, the address on the letter. It's to Titus, my true child in the faith. Paul calls Titus his son, but it's pretty clear that that's not biologically true. Titus wasn't, wasn't even a Jew. He was a Greek. So whenever Paul calls him son, he has something else in mind. And he talks about uh, their, their common faith. That's the thing that they have in common. Titus was probably converted under Paul's ministry. And that's why Paul calls him son. Folks, it struck me that this kind of language makes increasingly more and more sense in light of the kind of things that we have been learning here in our congregation recently. We have been trying to take seriously what it might mean to be a family of God. Well, I think this is one of the outworkings in a church community that's truly a family. Older members of the congregation who have taught in Sunday Club or who have led in BB or GB or who have been involved in Junior CE, who have, who have taught boys and girls and young people about Jesus, whenever they look at these young people and see them coming to faith, there's something in them that sees a, a son or a daughter in the faith. Isn't that a wonderful dynamic to see playing itself out in our church life? That our, our more mature members are able to look around and to see those who have led to faith and those who have encouraged in faith. And like Paul is able to say to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Folks, I hope I'll be able to say that about some of your children someday. Here's my son or daughter in the faith. And I know you'll play a significant role for, for Patrick and Sophie and Ruby as they grow up here. At this stage, it's likely that Titus had probably known Paul for about 15 years or more. He was converted during the early days of Paul's ministry in Antioch. Now, Titus must have been a wonderful example of a converted person. If you read in Galatians chapter 2, there's a really interesting thing that happens there. Paul brings Titus along to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to explain to the Jewish believers that he thinks that, that Gentiles, non-Jews, can be Christians, can be followers of Jesus Christ without becoming Jews. That's really the issue. 
that this conference is going to deal with. But Paul goes to that conference with this goal in mind, and he brings Titus with him. And he brings Titus with him, I think, as a kind of an exhibit. He points to Titus and he says, look at that fella. He's a Greek. But do you want to tell me that he's not a soundly converted, spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ? And the wonderful thing that happens, and you read about it in Galatians 2, is that when the believers, the Jewish believers, see this, so much do they see the life of Christ in Titus that they drop their agenda. They say, from now on, a person need not be a Jew to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of impression that Titus made on people he met. He had an undeniable sense of God's spirit in him and working through him. That's probably about as much as we know about Titus. A third question about this book, why did Paul send it? This is something we need to get our heads around when we read Paul's letters. Paul didn't send his letters so that in 2007 we'd have stuff to do sermons on. Okay, sometimes it feels like that in church life. That's not why Paul sent his letters. He sent his letter to Titus because he had real issues that he wanted to talk to Titus about. Look at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Titus is on a newly evangelized island of Crete and he's been given the job of carrying forward the work that he and Paul had started together. Now I hope it's becoming clear why a letter like this might be interesting to a congregation like ours. Here's a, a young pastor who's in a role where he's, he's trying to encourage growth in a church. Folks, I think if we pay attention to the guiding of God's Spirit who inspired Paul, then I think we too will, will learn of how we might serve God better in our world and our day. Paul tackles a number of different issues in this letter, but I think there's one underlying theme. And I'm going to warn you before we discover it, it's going to surprise you. The big thing in Titus is a surprising thing. Paul's theme is good works. In this short letter, bringing the message of Jesus, Paul mentions good deeds or good works eight times. Let, I just want you to spot them with me. We're not going to say anything about them, but let, let's spot them as we look through this letter together. I'm, I'm just looking. You don't have to turn a page because the whole of Titus is open in front of you. Is that right? Chapter 1, verse 8. Under a list of qualifications for elders or leaders, Paul says, an elder must be one who loves what is good. Can't have leadership if they aren't people who love good. Chapter 1, verse 16. This is a warning against false teachers. They are people who are unfit to do anything good. So those two are sort of like flip sides of the one coin. Chapter 2, verse 4. Titus is to teach the older women. They're supposed to teach what is good. Chapter 2, verse 7. Titus himself, Paul urges him, in everything, set an example by doing what is good. 
God's purpose for all his people. We see it in chapter 2 verse 14. To purify for himself a people that are his very own. Eager to do what is good. Then a reminder to the people in chapter 3 verse 1. About their behavior in public. Remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. And then as a reason to teach the gospel clearly in chapter 3 verse 8. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And then Paul concludes summarizing the whole letter in chapter 3 verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing whatever is good. Okay there are other things going on in this short letter and we'll pick up on them as we move through it. But it seems clear that Paul wants to teach his protege, Titus. He's saying, Titus, as you start work with this, this new church, with this small community that you're building up here, teach these people not only the truth, do that, of course, but teach them to live it out as they live good lives. <coughs> One commentator says that more than any other of the biblical writings, attention is given here to the nitty-gritty stuff of proper behavior in the community. Here's a letter, and it seems to be all about getting people to be good. I said it when, when we approached that, but that might surprise us. And, and you might be a little bit confused at this point. You might be particularly confused if, like me, you've grown up in, in strong evangelical churches where the gospel has been clearly preached. And you might be wondering why Paul is making such a big deal of good deeds in this letter. Our ministers and our teachers, they've taught us, till they're blue in the face, that good deeds don't make us right with God. What is it Paul himself says Famously in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. It's by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. This not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. That's Paul. The same Paul saying that in Ephesians chapter 2. And now he's written this letter to Titus. Urging him to get a congregation of people in Crete busy with good deeds. Why if Paul knew that salvation is by grace having nothing to do with works did he make such a big deal of good works in this letter to Titus? For fear of me giving the wrong answer let's look quickly at three references where the picture begins to build up in this short letter. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Titus is to teach the older women, to teach the younger women to live good lives, and then the reasons given, so that no one will malign the gospel, the word of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Titus himself, he's to be a model of good deeds. Why? So that those who oppose you may be ashamed that they have nothing bad to say about us. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Slaves are to obey their masters well, and the reasons given, so that in every way 
they'll make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Did you pick that up? Why are the believers in Crete to live good lives? It's not to make them right with God. Because Paul's right in Ephesians chapter 2. Our works will never make us right with God. But yet, there's a, a wonderful and a powerful reason here why we must be people who live good lives. If we live good lives as followers of Jesus Christ, then it's harder for people to malign our faith. When followers of Jesus Christ live good lives, then those who attack us haven't a leg to stand on. They're to be ashamed, Paul says. Their position's untenable. And even better says, when Paul says, when followers of Jesus Christ live good lives, then we make the gospel attractive. Friends, I hope you can see here this morning that just the very down-to-earth truth that Paul's teaching here. Whenever we display genuine signs of how Jesus is changing our lives, making us better and more attractive people, then the gospel, the good news about Jesus, becomes attractive to those around us. And folks, I suspect that the opposite might be true as well. I suspect that one of the reasons why so many people in Ulster who know the gospel well are hardened to it and are turned off by it is because people who claim to know the truth haven't demonstrated the good lives that that gospel should form in us. People are looking at Christians and it's either drawing them to Christ or, or else it's turning them away. Friends, there we are. We're up and running with this wonderful short letter. Paul, the senior pastor, he's writing to Titus, his young colleague, and he's telling him how he should lead this small community of believers in Crete. He wants them to live lives that make a difference in the community that they're in. Folks, I think that's a message that'll be wonderful for us to pay attention to for these next weeks. As a community of God's people in this, in this urban village of Ballyhackamore in East Belfast, we too are going to be invited to live good lives. Lives that make Jesus irresistible to the people Father God, we thank you that it's without our good deeds that you save us by your grace. Lord, if you waited for us to show any merit, each one of us would be lost entirely. But Lord, teach us now from your word this call to godly and good lives. Lives that demonstrate Jesus Christ. That show the changes that your spirit can and ought to make in us. Lord, warm our hearts with the prospect of this this morning. Send us this from this place 
with a new appetite to become good people. Not for our own sake, not that we might be smug, but so that people around us would see the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name, so that he would have glory in our community.